Hello and welcome to Backchat. And if the Nature podcast is artificially intelligent, then Backchat is the one copying all of its answers at the back of the class. Here we tell you what we really think of the science we've all been reporting all month. I'm Kerry Smith and here with me are three of Nature's finest. Lizzie Gibney is here. Hello, Kerry. I am physics reporter for Nature. Ewan Calloway also joins us. Howdy. I write about life sciences uh, for Nature. And is the only person in the office who still says howdy. Uh, Richard Van Norden. Hi there. I do chemistry, text, data. Okay, so coming up, an artificially intelligent programme learns to play Atari games, what ancient DNA can teach us about ancient languages, and who needs real-life scientists when you've got a decent text mining programme. So first, artificial intelligence. And you're probably thinking listeners of HAL from 2001 A Space Odyssey or the recent Ava from the film Ex Machina. Well, not quite real yet, I'm afraid, but a paper just out in Nature details an algorithm that's taking steps towards learning a little bit like humans do. Uh, Lizzie, you've been looking into this work, and first of all, we should say that the authors, unusually for a Nature paper perhaps, are all at DeepMind, so they belong to Google. Yes, so DeepMind is a company that was only founded a couple of years ago, and its goal is to create artificial intelligence, so, you know, it doesn't aim high or anything. Um, And uh, it's based here in London, and this, this paper, what they've managed to do is to create an algorithm that can play, I think, 49 different Atari arcade games. So these are things like um, Pong and Space Invaders and lots of those that you might be familiar with. Um, and so what's what's cool about it is a lot of the time in the past, we've been able to create computers that perhaps win at chess. We famously had uh, Deep Blue that beat Garry Kasparov back in, uh, in the 90s. And since then, we've had a lot of efforts at trying to play Go and Checkers. and But this can do a whole bunch of different games. And without being given any of the instructions, any of the rules, it's able basically to figure them out for itself. An artificially intelligent thing that can play Atari games. That's right. So what, what it's doing, kind of why it's exciting for the computer science world, is it's bringing together two different types of machine learning. So one is deep learning, which has um, gained a bit of traction recently, and that's actually what Google already uses in processes like photo recognition. Like it'll have a big set of training data, say lots and lots of pictures of cats, and they will be tagged as being cats. And then what will happen is it learns on that data until eventually it can spot cats by itself. So that kind of harnesses having huge amounts of this training data. And so that's that's kind of already slightly supposed to be based on the brain in that it uses a, a hierarchical structure and it's got um, it kind of connects the different nodes, which are supposed to be a little bit like neurons, uh, and the strength, the kind of the connections between them. And those are, those are strengthened when it when it learns. So we've had that from Google, but now what they've done with this is brought in something else, which is supposed to be even more like the way humans learn. Um, but uh, but the the reward structure that um, the kind of you know dopamine pathways that we have in the brain. So so in this system, all it was given was the screen, like the pixels on the screen, and it had a couple of little actions it could do, and then its score would either go up or it would die. And just based on that, kind of by trial and error, figuring out whether um, shooting the little space invader in this way was better than that way, it learned these strategies. And over the course of, you know, when it first starts playing, it's rubbish. And then after maybe 10 hours, it's absolutely amazing. And eventually it can be any any human. This is a more sophisticated than my own strategy for Street Fighter, for example, which is to press all the buttons at once. So this machine is already doing better than, than I am. It is. And obviously it's very fast. It can do some really 
cool strategies like it figures out um you know do you know breakout which is the one where you have like a little paddle going across the bottom and it bounces the ball up to get rid of the bricks it pretty soon figures out that all you've got to do is create a little channel up the side and then the ball will bounce around on the top and get rid of all the bricks and you don't have to do anything i knew it um, <laughs> it kind of finds these almost like hacks in the games because it's just so good and it's doing it in such a clear and logical way but there are ones that it isn't so good at one of those is called sequest and that's where you're in a little submarine now in that you've got to shoot sharks and it's like yep yeah, can totally handle that I shoot a shark, my score goes up, the computer makes sense of that. But the problem is, in order to stay in the game, to stay alive, you periodically have to go up to the surface to get more air. And what it finds really difficult is to link that, going up to the surface to get more air, with staying alive, because they're not directly related. There are many steps in between. And all it can do at the moment is kind of base its decision as to whether that was a good or bad idea on the last four screenshots. So it finds it really hard when the uh, reward is quite divorced from the action to know if its action is good or bad. So sort of a short-term Einstein. Exactly. Which is kind of interesting because when chess players, none of them can beat a computer now, but when masters still could, it was always the deep pattern of the game a human could see 70 moves ahead in a sort of basic pattern way, whereas a computer could never... I was going to say, is just brute computing power the, the way to overcome it? Because I think that's how computers overcame that problem. They just got better so they could play out, you know, you know, billions of moves instead of millions. It is. The problem is, so I think one of those computers that would be playing chess would have learned on it for an awfully long time. And the problem is at the moment is that learning isn't really transferable. So if it's played one game... When it then comes to playing another game, it actually it doesn't kind of learn from what it's already figured out. It completely has to start again from scratch, which is also not really what we think of as something that's generally intelligent. I got really good at Super Mario Brothers once, but I was still no better at Tetris. So maybe there's something going on here. But it did teach you some concepts. You know, you met these people called Mario and Luigi and you could understand them in the world in which they were. And Got really into mushrooms. There you go. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, you, you might have figured out that game, from that game you needed to bounce on enemies in order to kill them, and that I'm sure has come up in some other games since. This isn't necessarily even better AI for other games because there's only one goal to maximise the score. The rules are the rules. And we, you know, fundamentally we understand that. I mean, this, this computer, presumably, it, it sort of looks like it understands what the goal is and then get the numbers to go up. But it's just, you're feeding it pixels, it's increasing its number. It doesn't give a monkeys about any of that, does it? It doesn't understand fundamentally the rules of this game. Absolutely, it doesn't. Um, I, mean, I don't know if that's a, a good or bad thing, really. Yeah, and it's not like this computer would ever be like, oh, I can't be bothered today. <laughs> I want it to have some emotion. I'm asking too much. Overall, I mean, what's the point of teaching a machine or having it learn for itself to play these games? Well, the games themselves aren't really the end goal. Intelligence is such a really difficult and complex thing to understand that they're basically just breaking it down into small parts that they can tackle. So they might be able to approach intelligence from one angle and understand a tiny little part of it. Um, Somebody I spoke to compared these Atari games to being like the Drosophila of computer science. So, you know, we do all our studies on a really simple system like these Atari games and hopefully we can understand something that then you'll be able to apply and put together. So this could, so yeah, it could make for better programs that that Google runs. It could do better searches, better um, automatic translation. You know, it can learn when the kind of news stories put on a front page that like to get more hits or when adverts work and when they don't. But also, you know, it might go into better robotics because that's basically interpreting your environment and acting on it. So yeah, it's probably still quite a distance away. So so don't get worried, anybody. (laughs) 
I've got to say, when you read these kinds of papers, what you actually realise is how far we are away from artificial intelligence, not how close we're getting to it. Absolutely. I think so often when it's reported on, um, it's these kind of scare stories and, oh, we've got to think about the ethics. And of course, you know, you, it, it's always sensible to think about the ethics of any scenario at the start. But the idea that we are anywhere near any kind of scenario where we'd have to be worried about the intelligence that these machines have is just so unfathomably far away that, yes, I think everyone can sleep easy. I don't know. I I could see military types being very interested in in technologies like this. We were having a pub discussion the other day talking about drones. And currently, right now, I believe with drone attacks, you've got a a human being making the decision every time they they drop a bomb on a target. Um, But... Uh, you know, there's rumors and there's talk that, you know, people might want to make an intelligent computer or I put intelligent in air quotes, computer doing that stuff. So I don't think these scary applications are that far away. Well, it's it's difficult. So I know that when DeepMind were bought by Google, that was one of the stipulations they made was that they wanted to make sure that whatever they develop isn't used in the military and that Google have no interest in that. And whether you trust Google, whether they whether they don't be evil is genuine or not. Don't be evil. You've got to. It's a little bit like the lady doth protest too much when that when that's your motto. All right. Well, by now you should also find on our website a video about the pretty secretive world of DeepMind and its new AI capabilities. That's at youtube.com slash nature video channel. More computer power in our next topic and probably something else that's of interest to Google. We are moving to text mining. Uh, Richard, could you give us the 101? Basically, the idea is that software computers might be able to recognise and extract and index free text So even though they don't necessarily understand what it means, or perhaps they have some semantic knowledge. Now, the application to science where it's being used is that millions of papers come out every year, far too much for anyone really to read them all or keep up with. I do try. (laughs) The hope is that computers could read and organise this body of knowledge Ewan had a story this week that I thought he was going to talk about now. I wrote about text mining. Um, it was a story I came across, basically a paper that some economists had, had written. It was a preprint. They were interested in this question, how does the age of a scientist relate to how innovative they are, how risk-taking they are? And besides, you know, just fueling debates between professors and postdocs and graduate students over beers, this is really important stuff. The NIH has noted that the age of grant winners has been creeping up steadily over the last couple, last few decades. And young scientists are increasingly finding that, that science is unwelcome. So they're looking for mechanisms, devising mechanisms to support young scientists on the assumption that young scientists are more innovative, they're more risk-taking, uh, they bring fresher ideas to science. So these two economists had this idea, let's look at every single article in PubMed, which is this uh, index of pretty much all biomedical research published since the 1940s, and see if we can find evidence uh, that younger scientists are more innovative. And the way they did this was they basically text mined every title and every abstract in some 20 million papers. Uh, that's more than Richard has read, I believe. Only um, just. Yeah. And they looked at for every single one, two, or three-word string and found asked, when did that string first appear? So it might be something like polymerase chain reaction or kinase. These are topics that appear in the literature. Um, and then they asked how often did they appear in the future. Um, And so they came up with basically a text mind ranking of the most innovative concepts for every year. 
And then they asked, who were the scientists, not the scientists who came up with these innovative concepts like PCR, but who were the ones who used them first? Who were the early adopters of these hot topics? And then they related that to the what they defined as the career age of the scientist, uh, which is how many years after your first paper. And they were agnostic as to the you know, the, the goodness, I suppose, or otherwise of these ideas, whether they persisted in the literature for a long time or whether they were completely nutty? Um, I don't think they weighted, I don't think they weighted the ideas on how, on how they were used over time, but they did weight them on the ones that were most uh, successful. So the top idea in all of biomedicine, according to text mining, is polymerase chain reaction, which if you'll remember from last month's back chat, was devised by somebody who was a fan of psychedelic drugs. Notwithstanding, they did this. They related, the, related these hot topics to uh, scientists' career age and found a, a trend that basically, except for very new researchers, um, re- scientists tended to work on innovative topics when they were early in their career, in their first few years, and their chances of publishing an innovative paper went down in each subsequent year. So there you have it. Young researchers are the most innovative, says text mining. And says common sense, right? I mean, what does this offer us, this kind of approach, Richard, that we couldn't get from uh, just thinking about these things for a bit? Yeah, uh, well, one of the, yeah, exactly. One of the questions for text mining is, does it really tell you anything that you wouldn't think, well, yeah, I mean, obviously. <laughs> so the, I've seen one paper that I, I wanted to bring up that, that was quite cool. It was done by IBM with Watson. Uh, I'm going to bring it up and then I'm going to slag it off. But it, it was it was quite cool. Basically, they looked through loads of papers again, about, about I think, 20,000. And they were looking at a very particular protein, P53, which has been called like the guardian of the genome because it's supposed to stop various cancerous mutations occurring. And uh, every so often biologists find a new protein that interacts with P53 and it's very important because if you can affect that, can you switch on or switch off of P53? But you only find, you know, one every few years. So these guys basically wrote Watson so that it picked out every coincidental mention of p53 and kinases and other words altogether and tried to build up a kind of network of interactions between kinases some of which had never actually been directly connected to p53 so the idea is to find a hypothesis in the literature that's in there in the papers that no human being would ever find even though it was implicit in the body of knowledge that scientists had built up and what they did that was really clever was they said, well, we don't know if this is going to work yet. We've picked out some new kinases, so have a look at them, guys. They actually said, imagine we're back in 2003. What did we know from the literature then? What did our network look like then? They picked out the new kinases that text mining told them were probably linked to P53. And many of those had subsequently been found in future years by biologists. So basically, this is saying a computer could mine the scientific literature with a very well-structured question and suggest future avenues, future proteins to look at as potential targets for drugs, that it's all in there, but scientists just haven't spotted it yet and they could make it much more efficient. And how easy is it to go about doing this text mining? Because I, I remember a few years ago there was a change in the law in the UK because that was one of the big concerns was that because of copyright and, and publishing laws, actually scientists couldn't get their hands on all, all of this um, great like data that was there to be mined. 
It's still quite difficult. It's ridiculous that text mining is used by Netflix to analyse semantic opinions on films or text mining Twitter to see what people think about politics. But people aren't regularly text mining the scientific literature. And the reason for that is that lots of these papers are locked behind publishers' paywalls. Even if you pay to access the papers, there's a big argument about whether you need to pay more to have the capability to text mine them. And until a paper is fully open and the legal ramifications of text mining are fully worked out, most scientists are in a bit of a grey area. It's probably okay, but you might get blocked by a website if you try and download a load of papers, even if you have access. So that's what's really pausing things. And in the story about the innovative young scientists, they only looked at the abstracts and the titles of papers. Now, despite all this excitement, I was kind of surprised to see this experiment last week from guys at Scripps Research Lab who said the ability to read papers remains a uniquely human skill. And they're asking uh, ordinary volunteers, could be anyone listening to this podcast, to read medical papers and mark up all the terms that relate to a disease, like literally highlight them on screen, so that they can essentially have a an organised set of tagged documents And I tweeted at him, this is Andrew Sue, and said, well, hang on a minute, I thought computers could do this. This is what text mining is for. And he said, no, you know, Watson's not able to do this very well. The scores are not very high. You know, there's a lot of hype around it, basically. So there's a sort of weird disconnect between the potential of what computers might be able to do in particular cases and this guy at Scripps Research Lab saying, we still need humans We need humans to sit there and highlight all of these terms so that then the computers can sift through them. And I think this is really the key question about these kinds of computer text miners. You know, how intelligent are they really at recognising free text on their own? And IBM is is being a little bit disingenuous, perhaps, in, in building up Watson as the machine that wins on Jeopardy, the machine that understands text, when really it's operating on a huge structured training set and it it struggles outside of that world. All right. Well, um, maybe we should go from natural language uh, understanding to ancient languages. Ewan, uh, it wouldn't be a standard month for you, would it, unless you'd written something about ancient DNA? No. And uh, this month is a standard month. So what's new in, in old DNA this month? The study that I was looking at was basically looking at how do we explain the genetic makeup of Europeans today. And Europe has just been a melting pot, a source of of countless immigrations. The first humans, the first Homo sapiens to arrive in Europe, we think, came around 45,000 years ago um, from the Middle East, uh, from Africa via the Middle East, and they replaced Neanderthals who were living there. Um, Seven or 8,000 years ago, farmers from the Middle East came and replaced the, you know, the hunter-gatherers that were living there. And, you know, other populations have come since over the times. And so these researchers were wondering, how can we understand the makeup of Europeans today? And so they sequenced or they analyzed the genomes of something like 94 ancient Europeans uh, living between 3,000 and 8,000 years ago. And they found evidence for these waves of migration that I talk about, especially the one with Middle Eastern farmers coming into Europe about six or seven or 8,000 years ago, um, where they replaced and interbred with local hunter-gatherer populations. But they also found evidence for this this migration that we really didn't know about, um, these steppe herders who lived in present-day Russia and Ukraine, the Amnaya. Uh, very closely matched DNA 
from uh, individuals living in, in Western Germany around uh, 4,500 years ago. So it's really good evidence that there was this massive migration, as they call it, from the Yamnaya, from the steppes of Eurasia, into Western Europe. And there's this longstanding debate about the origin of these languages, the so-called Indo-European languages. They include about 400 languages and dialects spoken by 3 billion people, all the way from Iceland to Sri Lanka. And there's this hypothesis that these languages were spread when humans living in the steppes of Eurasia massively expanded their range, going you know west to Europe, south to Anatolia, and uh, further south and east towards the Indian subcontinent. And the researchers, the authors of this ancient DNA paper said, our results are at least somewhat consistent with this linguistic hypothesis and that maybe some uh, European languages could descend from this migration that they uncovered. I find it quite mind-boggling that you could make conclusions about something as un-DNA, if you like, as language from just looking at the sequences from, of these ancient humans. It's so far above, isn't it, the structure of the DNA? Right. Well, we have no idea uh, what languages these, these migrants spoke. Uh, languages don't fossilize in DNA. Languages aren't preserved in DNA. But if you think about the world 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have planes. Uh, travel didn't happen very far, and culture couldn't diffuse as rapidly as it can today. So language is culture. And so you know, the way language is probably diffused until quite recently was through human migrations. Are linguists pretty annoyed uh, at the ancient DNA guys coming in and just telling them, oh, yeah, we've worked out. It was, it was this migration, not that one. The linguists are actually pretty pleased about this study, at least a couple or one of them I've spoken with. And that's because there is a competing hypothesis to this one I just talked about, that these herders living in Ukraine and Russia spread these languages. About sometime in the, in the 1980s, I think, a, uh, an anthropologist, archaeologist named Colin Renfrew proposed that Indo-European languages emerged in the Middle East, in Anatolia, more like eight or 9,000 years ago when farming was invented there. And we know that farmers spread their technologies or they actually spread, they moved to Europe and elsewhere. And so there have been these two competing hypotheses. And there's been a new analysis done to basically create a family tree of Indo-European languages by some linguists at Berkeley. And this too backs up the step hypothesis. So it's, it's been a good week for this idea that these herders from Russia and Ukraine are the reason we're speaking English right now. I wonder if there's a danger that amongst the community of linguists, perhaps, who after all are not ancient DNA experts, that they might just sort of yield to the um, supposed power and the impressiveness of this giant data set of DNA and um, take it a bit too seriously. I don't know. Have you ever met a linguist? <laughs> they're a, they're a, uh, a bickery folk. I don't think linguists will just take this, you know, ancient DNA data and say, ah, you've, you've shown us the light. And an example of that is a few years ago, an evolutionary geneticist did a, a similar analysis to the one I just talked about. And he basically, you know, said, you know, oh, I'm just going to plug all the Indo-European languages into a computer and see if I can come up with a family tree. Oh, look, my family tree says they evolved eight or 9,000 years ago, probably in Anatolia. You guys are wrong. And that pissed so many linguists off. So, you know, I, I don't think they're just going to look at this data, this ancient DNA data, and say, case closed. But, you know, the fact remains... Languages, by and large, are spread by human movement and ancient DNA, especially in the last 10,000 years, 
is a fabulous way to, to really understand the scope and the scale of human movements. And if as linguists you don't have sources that go back anywhere near that far, it must be great to get your hands on some ancient data, even if it's of a completely different type and it has to be treated you know, very carefully to, to pull findings from it. It's kind of cool to have. And Ewan's also found a sample of Proto-Indo-European. Here's a little demo. This is a story about a childless king who goes to a priest and asks for help. A nice Indo-European fable. Mm, that yeah. was beautiful. I think I heard a little Latin in there. I heard a, a quid. Definitely Old English as well. Mm. All right. And uh, does anyone have any other business? Occasionally we have found it traditional to put some science in the bin at this point. Has anyone seen any terrible science or science coverage? So this is one I'd love to be able to throw in the bin. I haven't actually seen the read the paper yet, so I feel I can't throw the paper in the bin. However, the reporting of it may be slightly. So um, The Economist covered another Did Dark Matter Kill the Dinosaur story. And I'm guilty of writing such a story myself, but I was, was like... very well researched, though. It was very well researched. I, I put in lots and lots of caveats. This was a little bit like writing a story like that, which is clearly so speculative. So the idea is that... Um, the Earth, when it travels around the galaxy, actually kind of bobs up and down through the galactic plane. And when it does that, if there is a disk of dark matter, the kind of pull of that may bring in comets from the edge of, of the solar system from the Oort cloud that would then smash into the planet um, and cause the kind of mass extinctions. And the, what this guy is saying is that also actually dark matter might accumulate in the centre of Earth and that might drive tectonic activity. You know, cool. And my news editor immediately went, wow, does that mean we can say dark matter causes volcanoes? And um, <laughs> that's exactly the kind of story you'd love to write. But unfortunately, it is extremely speculative. Um, the Even the periodicity of mass extinctions and of perhaps lesser mass extinctions, but more of the actual geological activity and of, of impact cratering is very, very sketchy. Um, and The Economist wrote a very nice, fun story about it, but they only interviewed the author. And there was kind of no, there was one little throwaway comment, which was um, something like, of course, others disagree. Um, so, you know, it's lovely. But personally, I'd like to think if you're going to write a story like that, you've just got to put in that little bit more effort to to make to, to give to give readers, you know, a sense of why you're writing it and the good and bad of that story. You uh, and Callaway, you had some science to put in the bin. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, some Neanderthal news, and you know, of course li- it is. Of course, regular like regular listeners of the podcast know that I take my Neanderthal news seriously, and this this bit of news comes from the Daily Mail, which I know is like shooting fish in a barrel, but I couldn't resist. And the headline for this story is: Women were expected to do household chores one hundred thousand years ago. Neanderthal females fixed clothing while men made tools. This research, which I actually I noticed in the journal, is one of these articles that made me go. Hmm, that's interesting. It was an analysis of the teeth of, I think, something like 100 Neanderthal teeth from males and from females. And it found differences in the wear patterns between males and females. I don't think they were huge, but there were were slight differences. And the researchers argued that Neanderthals and probably ancient humans used their teeth as kind of a, a third hand, used their mouths as kind of a third hand when doing various tasks. The Daily Mail story took the leap based on just some throwaway comment that a researcher said that perhaps, you know, females were making clothing. Neanderthals probably needed clothing because they were living in very cold Europe and men were making tools, Um, which to me is just kind of 
the Daily Mail imparting their kind of worldview on a different species at a different time that we know nothing about. You know, it's an, I think it's a really interesting observation that there might have been division of labor amongst these ancient humans. But just mapping it onto our stereotype gender roles is, I, mean, I think, is total BS. So they, they thought that the... The male tooth patterns were kind of more no. worn because they were biting on the rocks they were using to make no. tools or no, what? No, you don't, you don't. I don't think you bite on rocks when you make tools. I've never made a stone tool. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you can imagine that if you're if you're perforating leather or something like that, you might use your, your teeth there. But they had, I'm pretty sure they had no basis for saying what these different bits of labor were. Um, I think there is good evidence that both male and female Neanderthals were involved in hunting. They mentioned that in the story quite deep down. And I think somewhere down in the story, they basically completely undermine their whole story, saying... They put their own science in the bin. Oh, it's so nice. Yeah, they put their own science in the bin. Well, you know, it's somewhat respectable. Basically, they said, we have no way of knowing what any of this means. Thanks for reading. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Okay, well, all that remains to be done now is to thank our correspondents for coming in. Thank you to Lizzie Gibney, Richard Van Norden and Ewan Calloway. For more of their work, check out nature.com slash news. And thanks to DeepMind for providing the code they wrote for this artificially intelligent talk show host algorithm you're listening to right now. Uh, Also available for games testing at an arcade near you. We're all on Twitter, by the way, so come and find us there. I'm at Minnie Kerry. Uh, Twitter handles have become the standard. At Lizzie Gibney. At Rich Vienne. At Ewan Calloway. Or drop us a line. Tell us what you think of the show at podcast at nature.com. Thanks for listening.